Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 114. Welcome to Niblo's Garden. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with this solo show this week. And I have to apologize right now. I have a bad cold, which is definitely affecting my voice. So it's probably a little lower than normal. It's been raining in New York for like the past two weeks, so it's been totally dreary here. But I'm planning to bring a little sunshine into the show with a dive back into the cultural life of New Yorkers in the earliest 19th century. It's always a fun subject. And specifically, I'm very happy to introduce the concept of the pleasure garden. Now, that may sound a little tawdry to some of you, but in fact, the Pleasure Garden was one of the most popular entertainments of the 19th century, especially in the years before the idea of public parks would really take root in the city. Today's equivalent of this would be more akin maybe to like an amusement park with a variety of different activities that would bedazzle and engage the New Yorkers of the day. And none of these gardens were more important to our cultural existence today than the oddly named Niblo's Garden, the project of a coffee house owner who took over some acreage on the northern edge of town in the 1820s and launched nightly spectacles, including theatrical performances and fireworks shows. But what makes Niblo's Garden an extremely notable destination for us today is something that debuted here on September 12th, 1866. The debut of what many people consider today to be the very first Broadway musical. Now, this particular podcast will require a great deal of your imagination, as the area of New York that hosted Niblo's Garden for decades is radically different today. So unless you're walking or driving, just close your eyes... Imagine the smell of lemonade, the rumpa-pa of a marching band, and the glow of colorful glass lanterns strung along the entire property of William Niblo's Theater and Garden.
So the place we're heading to today is Manhattan at the corner of Broadway and Prince Street in the neighborhood of Soho. Needle's Garden took up most of the length of the block on the northeast corner, running east the length of Prince Street to Crosby Street, and of course north up Broadway all the way to Houston Street. Essentially, we're focusing here on the building that holds the Armani Exchange clothing store on the bottom. So if you can picture that or stand in front of it, this is where most of our action is. Today, of course, this is the epicenter of one of the most bustling shopping districts in New York. To get us to the start of our tale here, erase from your mind all of the street vendors selling jewelry and art, all the buildings and paved streets, and return to its days as a farm with rolling hills and groves of oak trees, several yards north from a large hill called Bayard's Mount. Then further south of Bayard's Mount, of course, everybody's favorite, soon-to-be-fetid, body of drinking water, Collect Pond. During the late 17th century, a great portion of this land we know and love as Soho today was part of the estate owned by one Nicholas Bayard, he, of course, of Bayard's Mount, which I just mentioned. Now, I know you're waiting for the reference, so here it is. Bayard, a member of a prominent Dutch clan, was also the nephew of New Amsterdam's director general, Peter Stuyvesant. There'll be no Robert Moses of this episode, but there was the Stuyvesant fix. So the farm stayed in the Bayard family for decades. When the daughter of Nicholas Bayard III, young Mary Bayard, married a prosperous lawyer in 1788, Nicholas named a street that jutted through his property after his new son-in-law. That lawyer's name was William Houston, H-O-U-S-T-O-U-N. It only took a couple generations, however, to lose that U in the name, giving us Houston Street that, of course, looks like it should be called Houston Street. By the start of the 19th century, the Bayards had sold off all their farm, lot by lot, to pay for growing debts. For the next few years, the land between Prince and Houston, here at Broadway, would then be owned by another prominent New York family, the Van Rensselaers, and would be used for a variety of different purposes, including the site of a small circus with the lofty name of the stadium, as well as a drilling ground for militia around the time of the War of 1812. So it remained a curiously undeveloped piece of property, even as the city matured around it. Bayard's Mound would soon be flattened, Collect Pond, of course, would be drained, and Broadway here would be paved with cobblestones up to just a few blocks north of Houston Street. The city, of course, was having a growth spurt. But in 1820, this area, Prince and Broadway, was still considered one of the very northern reaches of New York. But fine townhouses and businesses began their way out of crowded downtown and started slowly spreading up Broadway. Many of these, of course, were the newly wealthy, the nouveau riche, business owners and merchants who didn't have enough money for a summer home outside of the city, like, say, our friend Archibald Gracie did, the topic of our last podcast. The newly prosperous, this early vestige of an upper middle class, they couldn't afford to flee the cities during the summertime. And that's what made the idea of these pleasure gardens such an appealing attraction. The idea of a tranquil, perfectly proper pleasure garden was an English notion, not surprisingly. In fact, some of New York's first pleasure gardens still had British names, such as the Ranelagh Gardens, and the most well-known of the day, the Vauxhall Gardens. So what were these gardens like? They were large, gated, 
private properties, open primarily during the summer months, and they often charge lofty admissions to keep out the riffraff. Once inside, you could stroll around some heavily manicured shrubbery, taking in the perfume of flowering blooms along a gravel path admiring various pieces of sculpture and paintings illuminated by candlelight. You might stumble into a small orchestra playing a light ballad, or you can enjoy a light refreshment in the form of a mint julep or ice cream, which, of course, the Vauxhall was especially known for. Also at the Vauxhall were historical waxworks in ornate costumes and a small stage to enjoy, perhaps, a light opera. The Vauxhall, which had lived through many incarnations through the British era, moved in 1807 to an abandoned garden just south of Astor Place on what is today's Lafayette Street and on property that was no surprise, owned by John Jacob Astor. Vauxhall thrived here, and by 1820 had become one of the city's premier attractions. So if you're mapping this out in your head, you might have realized that Vauxhall was actually quite close to the area that we're discussing here, Broadway and Prince. Now somebody I could not find exactly who and could not find much information about this opened something called the Columbia Gardens or the Columbian Gardens here at Broadway and Prince in 1823 as competition, very meager competition, to the Vauxhall. But the Battle of Dueling Gardens wouldn't truly begin until a very savvy businessman entered the picture, a man named William Niblo. Nibla was an Irishman who moved to New York and opened a very successful establishment downtown called the Bank Coffee House on Pine Street, named for the nearby Bank of New York and close to some of these more famous coffee houses, coffee houses we've mentioned in other podcasts, such as the Tontine Coffee House, which is the birth of the New York Stock Exchange. These weren't, of course, just places for sipping coffee, but they were gathering places and business spots for elite merchants and bankers. So obviously, after a dozen years of schmoozing around with New York's money brokers, Nimlo himself became handsomely rich and quite ambitious as well. He actually wanted to kick it up to the next level, to a higher profile business. So in the mid-1820s, Nimlo leased the sad little Columbian Gardens up here at Broadway and Prince, leased it from the Van Rensselaer landholders, and then promptly made some huge changes. He threw some big investments into the place, improving the landscape, rapidly revolving exhibits and presentations so that there would always be a reason for people to return here. Songbirds and cages, foreign acrobats, human tableau nestled in a bed of flowers. Large trees from upstate were brought in and replanted here, neighboring right next to brand new fountains and a small gazebo for orchestral pieces. He brought more enticing food services to the garden and the forms of refreshment halls and open-air saloon. Some sources I read even consider Niblo's to be one of New York's first real restaurants, even before the days of Delmonico's. Niblo's also displayed artwork. In particular, it displayed panoramas, large wraparound scenes of historical events that would often go on national tours and draw huge crowds who would sit and ogle at them. By 1830, Niblo had set up a small exhibition hall strictly devoted to panoramas, called the Grand Parastrophic Panorama. So after a stroll through the gardens, you could sit inside here and gasp at the actions that were depicted on such Niblo panoramas as Paris and Tears, or biblical tales like Balshazar's Feast. At night, he lined the garden with lanterns of colored glass, which you could see glowing from blocks away, and brand new innovative gas-lit pathways, the better to people watch with, 
And believe it or not, every night there would be a glorious fireworks show. It helped that next door to Niblo's was a fireworks manufacturer. Yes, in the city. You can see where that's going to go. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. But Nibbo's reputation would really be made with the help of the theater. Initially, there was a small stage here at Nibbo's called the Sans Souci and presented very modest shows like its very first one called The Hundred Pound Note. However, when one of New York's finest theaters in the city, the Bowery Theater, burnt down in 1828, one of many times the Bowery Theater would burn down, Nibbo decided that it was time to open a rival theater right here on the side of his garden. His theater, after a series of expansions, would eventually seat over 3,000 people and would host variety shows, musical recitals, acrobatic acts, dramas, pantomimes, and a bit later in time, vaudeville and minstrel shows. And all of these entertainments, not including the ice cream sandwiches and the lemonade, for the lofty sum, at least in the early days, of 50 cents. Not surprisingly, Niblo's garden began eclipsing Vauxhall and the other pleasure gardens of New York. Almost immediately, it became the go-to entertainment complex if you were a young New Yorker in the 1830s. An 1839 article in the New York Mirror sang praises about the place. Quote, Niblo was meeting his reward for indefatigable industry and unwearied exertion. His garden is the most attractive and pleasant resort imaginable. No sooner does one novelty decline than presto, another takes its place. The extensive saloon, gravel walks, and promenades are nightly thronged with bells and bows, men of leisure, and men of business, merry wits, and every variety of person worth meeting and seeing, unquote. It was a fantastic success. Niblo soon became one of the most notable theaters in town, attracting international talent and some of the largest productions the city had ever seen. One of the most notorious exhibits went on display here in August of 1835 when a young Connecticut showman by the name of P.T. Barnum brought his very first touring show to New York and displayed it here at Niblo's, the alleged 161-year-old nurse of George Washington named Joyce Hess. Now, if that sounds a little bit hard to believe, I'm just going to leave you in suspense and to direct you to our podcast on Barnum's American Museum, where we talk more about this particular stunt by Barnum. 
Things started to shift at Niblo's Garden when she got to the 1840s. When a fire actually took out Niblo's Theater in 1846, you see, this is the problem with having a fireworks manufacturer next door, is that sometimes things caught fire. William Niblo actually just rebuilt the theater even larger than before, reopening it in 1849. But by this time, your garden variety, Pleasure Garden, was losing ground to actual things like public parks that were being built. I mean, within 10 years, they would people would have Central Park to go to. The novelty of wandering around a fenced-in garden on the busiest street in New York was losing its luster a bit, even as Niblo's Theater became the hottest place to see a show in 1850, which happened to be the year, for instance, that Verdi's opera Macbeth made its American debut here at Niblo's. Soon there would essentially be no garden left in the garden, as the theater became part of a larger hotel complex that Niblo and his landlord, the Van Rensselaers, commissioned in 1852. What became known as the Metropolitan Hotel fronted the entire block facing Broadway and part of Prince. It was an L-shaped building that connected to Niblo's theater, which was behind it and connected through the lobby. In the era decades before the Waldorf Astoria, this was one of the most glorious places to stay in all the city. And I'm quoting from a description that I found that was on the website of the Museum of the City of New York. Quote, the tally of attractions included mantles made of rare marbles, polished oak banisters, Wilton carpets, rosewood furniture upholstered in rich brocatel, silk damask curtains, and stained glass windows with heraldic motifs. So clearly not your run-of-the-mill boarding house here, as you can imagine. Not to mention that the Metropolitan Hotel had the largest plate glass mirrors in all the United States, a total of up to $200,000 in luxury furnishings here. Just in time, of course, for the dawn of the Gilded Age. Believe it or not, however, it would be almost 14 years later, in 1866, before Niblos would see its biggest triumph of all, a new form of stage production that is considered by most to be basically the very first Broadway musical, extremely primitive version of it. And of course, as all great innovations, it happened pretty much by accident. A Parisian ballet troupe had arrived in New York City that year in 1866 to perform at the Academy of Music, which was on 14th Street. But like almost everything that we've talked about on this show in the 19th century, when they arrived, they found that the Academy of Music had unfortunately burnt down during their voyage. So their handlers approached Niblo's Theater to see if maybe they could be booked there instead. But what the theater manager of Niblo's had in mind was, was a more experimental idea. He decided to incorporate the troupe into a poorly written play that had fallen into his hands called The Black Crook to essentially create a big budget musical spectacle. To do this, the writer of the play was paid off, brand new songs were written specifically for the show, and the attractive French dancers were garbed in skin-colored tights and hoisted about with elaborate special effects and colored lighting. The result, the musical The Black Crook, had a running time of five and a half hours long each night, but was such the rage that it played for months and made Niblos over a million dollars, and that's in 1866 dollars, so that was a lot of money. The play, which is really awful, uh, essentially is a German fantasia that features characters with the names of Count Wolfenstein, Rodolf, and Amina, and of course, my favorite, Stalacta, Fairy Queen of the Golden Realm. So if you're looking for a Halloween costume this year, I recommend you look into some pictures. 
the black crook and run to your Halloween store to see if they have any stalacta outfits. The elderly William Niblo left the operation of Niblo's theater to others and later died in his home on 24th Street in 1878. But the Niblo name had a life of its own by then, and the hotel and the theater had passed on to a new owner, A.T. Stewart, a very well-known retailer of the day, known for opening the world's first department store. Now, Stewart, of course, could attract the highest-end clientele, but he didn't do everything right. Around 1870, he had the misfortune of hiring as his hotel manager a man named Richard Tweed, whose father... Boss Tweed had run the city once, but whose exploits would soon ensure that the surname Tweed would come to imply dishonesty. Niblo's theater did try to innovate with the changing times, becoming one of the first New York stages to experiment with, quote, novel lighting effects by the Edison Electric Light Company, unquote. A bit of wizardry here that included an illuminated model of the Brooklyn Bridge. They also latched on to the Wild West craze with a hit play in 1872 on the life of Buffalo Bill. The good times of Niblo's and the Metropolitan would obviously not last. The theater circuit was, of course, hurtling up Broadway, uptown, fated to, of course, stop around 42nd Street. The luxury hotel business, of course, went along with it. So as a result, the final curtain at Niblo's went down on March 23rd, 1895. And by the end of the year, both hotel and theater had been ripped down by the land's new owner, Henry O. Havemeyer. Now, you may remember the Havemeyer name from my solo show on the history of Williamsburg. The Havemeyers made their money in sugar, and their factory on the East River was one of Brooklyn's major industries. You know this today as the Domino Sugar Factory. Havemeyer actually ended up commissioning the office building, which stands there today at the corner of Broadway and Prince. So that building is sometimes referred to as the Havemeyer Building. I'll just end with a final caveat about this building. Havemeyer, being one of New York's wealthiest moguls, could obviously afford the best and hired George B. Post, the city's most exquisite Beaux-Arts architect, and is best known to most people as the architect of the building that houses the New York Stock Exchange today, an organization which got its start at the Tontine, located nearby the coffee shop that was first owned by William Niblo. Although most of Niblo's existence was before the era of common photography, I will try on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, to find a few images of the early days, some illustrations perhaps. There are a couple photographs that exist of the final moments of Niblo's, so I'll have them up there. Check us out there. You can also check us out on Facebook. Just type in Bowery Boys, and there's conversations going on there. We have videos that are posted, and lots of great feedback and suggestions from people that are on there, and we greatly appreciate that. I'm super excited because in two weeks, Tom will be back, and we'll have our annual Halloween podcast. Um, we already have some creepy things already cooked up for that one, so please come back for that. Thank you for visiting Niblo's Pleasure Garden with me this week. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.